Hello and welcome to another podcast. Today I'm talking to Chad Mackin. Chad is very popular, especially on Facebook, for his posts, which always cause a lot of conversation. But also he's well known as a podcaster. He's had many dog training podcasts, including the Something to Bark About podcast. He's a former president of the IACP. Um, so he's just he's done a lot of very interesting things. His, his stuff on um, lead uh, pressure, leash pressure techniques and stuff like that is also super popular. So yeah, Chad definitely has something to add to the conversation and some really interesting insights. And I thought it would be really good to have a podcast with him where we can kind of get into some of that stuff and discuss some of the stuff that always leads to really interesting conversations online and bring that to the podcast format, essentially. But before we get started, a quick shout out to our podcast sponsor, which is N2N Canine Mills. N2N make treadmills for dogs, essentially. So they make carpet mills and slap mills, which can really help you improve your dog's fitness. Um, and just a fantastic thing to add to your repertoire. So be sure to check them out on Instagram and on their website, which is N2N Canine Mills. That's the letter N, the number two, the letter N again, canine like the word, mills.com, or you can find them on Instagram. And as a listener, listener of this podcast, you can use the code NB10 at checkout. All right, super. Let's get into it. Hey, Chad, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick, thanks for having me, man. It's really good to talk to you, a fellow podcaster, really, right? Yeah, so. well, I mean, in absentia. Yeah. <laughs> I like talking to other podcasters. I don't know if you found this, but it's, it's, there's something about talking to other podcasters where I think you oftentimes end up with a better conversation because the person isn't terribly nervous. Whereas I, there's a lot of reward from having someone on that's never done a podcast before because it's like, oh, brilliant. Like I'm getting that almost like an exclusive, you know? Um, mm -hmm. However, there's there's also a lot of risk that comes with that in terms of if the person's really nervous and then they don't really represent themselves how they would want to represent themselves because of that. Versus when I do a podcast with another podcaster, I know that it's just going to be a, a good conversation and it's going to be chill and they're not we're not going to have to deal with any of that. Yeah. Um, just just so you know, I, I'm holding a Kong right now. My dog is chewing on it. So if you see me looking over, that's why she's trying to she's trying to get me to play with her. And like, <laughs> like, so here's the interesting thing. This is one of these uh, do as I say, not as I do things like I tell all of my clients, you have to have your play markers really clear and clean. Um, and uh, you're are you ready? And you're enough like starting in the game. But with my own personal dog, it's like, hey, don't do that now. And I don't really I don't really insist that. I start the game like I tell my clients to because I can always stop her when I need to. Mm. So anyway, so right now I'm kind of being, uh, uh, <laughs> trying to start a game with Tug, but she's quiet about it. And uh, sometimes, you, a, sometimes you want the dog to like, want to do stuff though, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. I like I can't, I remember Ron who I had on recently, uh, who's really into this dog was talking about, and I can't remember the phrase he used, but like where you, you want the dog to almost like ask you, like, mm -hmm. can we do stuff? You know, like, yeah, you get a little bit of, of, uh, yeah, it's kind of nice coming from them as well. So you kind of want that desire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, like, so like when we, when I'm talking, when I'm teaching the average dog owner, 
you know, which I hate that term, by the way, because what is an average dog owner, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, but uh, when I'm teaching somebody who's not real great with dogs, let me put that a novice dog owner is probably a better way to say it. Um, and we're putting, we're teaching the dog to play these drivey games. I want to make sure they have clear control of it, right? Because what you don't want to do, if you're playing tug with your dog a lot and uh, it's easy for them to start to see a, a purse strap as a tug toy or a leash. Or uh, I, I remember I trained a dog one time, a lab, who their big problem was the owner had a walker and they had those tennis balls on the bottom of the walker that people put to like, yeah, you know, no. protect, yeah. protect the ground. Well, the dog just was going after those tennis balls. <laughs> Like, so like if you if you teach the dog to, to play hard because when you're playing with the dog it's a game dog it's a game of keep away the dog is trying to win and is trying to evade your efforts to persuade them or to prevent them from doing that so you're building this dog who is willing to overcome you in certain circumstances so if you're not really good with that if you're not really well versed in that you need to have a very clear you don't ever initiate the game because like we don't want you grabbing grandma's you know dress or her cane or you know uh the little purse that the little toddler's wearing you know like oh, you don't I see what you're saying yeah i think it depends how they initiate the game as well right yeah like there's yeah. a difference between coming up and standing in front of you and kind of giving you that look yeah. versus abs just you're just grabbing something you know yes exactly and i tell them the dog can ask like i tell them put all your tug toys where the dog you know, can't get to them. But if they're up on the mantle in a basket and the dog looks at the basket, looks at you, looks at the basket, looks at you, you know, that's asking. And they're allowed to do that. Like, as long as they'll take no for an answer, that's the other important. If you say not right now, they go, okay, fine. And they settle down. Like, so like my dog, she just brought the Kong. I held it for like five minutes and she pulled on it. And now she's, you know, just laying down on the ground content. She's not even, you know, normally she'd be chewing on it. I think she's not used to me just yakking into the air. So... <laughs> So, like, like she's why is he talking to that computer? Yeah, I thought she'd be used to that by now with, with all the podcasts and stuff that you do. Well, I've only had this one for a couple of months. So, yeah. um, you know, my 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 heart dog, Sadie, passed away. Um, I don't know. It's probably been a year now. I'm not sure. Um, but it took me a long time to be ready to to oh. share my life with another dog. Another so, feeling. Yeah. So she's she's kind of new here. Like, but but she fits in great so i'm not oh, worried fantastic. about it yeah hey look before we were recording this podcast you almost started before we started recording you said i'm i'm just so frustrated with the industry right now and i said yeah. hold that fault <laughs> yeah. i said hold that fault we've got to record that we've got to have this conversation on the podcast because that's yeah so i want to hear yeah. it. what's what's frustrating you chad well, I mean, like, I, I know when you reach, so like, there's a whole lot of stuff, but the main thing comes down to is, is, uh, human beings are tribal. Like we all are, we can't help it. There's no, there's no getting out of it. There's, there's none. Like, and that's the thing that's really important is, is we're hardwired to form these in, in groups and out groups. And we're hardwired to be, you know, more understanding and more, uh, tolerant and see our behavior of our in group with a lot more nuance and a lot more uh, uh, sensitivity and we're hardwired to see the out group more as uh, one lump sum and with less nuance and, uh, uh, and we can't help that. Right. So, but what we can help is sort of how we draw those lines. 
right? Like the, the, the bad news is, I think Sapolsky says that the bad news is tribalism is hardwired. The good news is it's really easy to change your tribe, right? So like, you know, he Sapolsky gives the example of, you know, maybe, you know, you, you're a, a Protestant and you hate Catholics, right? But uh, then you see a Catholic wearing the gear for the same sports team you like. And then you're like, oh, this now you're now you're fans of this particular this particular team and so now it's not uh, protestant versus catholic now it's you know cubs fan versus you know whatever you know and so it's easy to change our tribe and for some dumb reason the dog training world has chosen largely to to establish their tribes along lines of do you ever use aversive control techniques or do you never use aversive control techniques and i think it's a real dumb place to draw the line because well for a lot of reasons but most importantly for me is is it it ignores the way we do those things right uh i've always said that that line gives me allies i don't necessarily want and enemies i absolutely do not want right like uh when i'm stuck with a dog i'm generally going to uh lean more towards trainers who do as much as they can to avoid aversion more than I'm going to lean towards trainers who just jump there right away. Like, I mean, I don't mean to trash an idea or a concept or, but it doesn't take a whole lot of creativity or skill to suppress a behavior. It just doesn't like, like, uh, uh, and I'm not saying there's something wrong with suppressing behavior necessarily, right? Uh, but I'm just saying, like, like if that's if that's your your whole thing, like, have you really developed a professional skill, or are you just really good at being, you know, kind of shitty to dogs, right? I don't know. Is this a PG <laughs> podcast? Like, what's, what's no, the, what's no, the you're good, you're good. Okay, yeah, you're like, like, and don't get me wrong, like, like, like again, there are times where you kind of just have to, have to, where the where I believe the uh, the most ethical choice is to be a little firmer with the dog and say, Hey, knock that shit off. You can't do that. As long as that's coming from a place of love and respect and, you know, uh, truly you're doing it in the dog's best interest, not because it's a little easier for you. I don't have a problem with that, but I have a problem with people who just go, I oh, just, you know, just correct that dog, just correct that dog. Like with no concern about what's going on with the dog to make them that way. And, uh, you know, uh, I just think, I just think if we love dogs, we should treat them like we love them. And, and so we have to like, you'll see a lot of people will, will start to go like, give these complicated reasons why being really hard on your dogs is the most loving thing you can do. And, you know, there was a time where I could have made those arguments, but there, there was also always in that, in that argument, this sort of idea that, if this were really true, I shouldn't have to work so hard to prove it. Right. You know, like, like it, 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 it's, you know, it's very simple. And the other reason, well, there's a lot of reasons why I hate that dichotomy, but, uh, but I think it's really like one man. So if you think about it uh, and these, and Nick, I apologize because these thoughts that I'm giving you right now are, are uh, not fully developed. They're half baked. So uh, my, I know what I know what's going on in here, but getting it out of my mouth and into <laughs> into somebody else's ears uh, is is the hard part. Like I have the thought bubble in my head. I don't know that I can transfer it to other people too well. But uh, yeah, I, I'm thinking in terms of this. What I call it the the spectrum of influence, 
right? So when somebody calls a dog trainer, what they want us to do is influence the dog's behavior. That's the, you know, the, there's something, either something the dog's not doing they want them to do, or the dog is doing things they don't want them to do, but they're not happy. Nobody ever calls a dog trainer and says, I love my dog. I just want to work with them. That almost never happens to the professional dog trainers. That's what dog trainers do. But dog owners are like, no, I like him. I don't need your help. We're good. <laughs> right? And so, um, so they want us to influence the dog's behavior. And so now my language here is going to be a little sloppy, admittedly, because I'm going to use, uh, there's this whole big umbrella of influence. And then underneath it, I got these like, like these levels and the lowest level is also called influence, which I know is kind of problematic, but no, like, so influence with the big eye is over the whole thing. Influence <laughs> with the little eye is the subset, right? So uh, dog trainers all know how to influence dogs in the lowercase i sense of it, right? So we've all experienced that, I think, where the client has a dog that's just acting like a fool on the leash, bouncing around, barking, pulling, just has no no social connection to that handler at all. And we go, let me see the leash. And as soon as our fingers touch the leash, before they've even closed, before we even have a grip, that dog goes, oh, and just suddenly stops their nonsense, right? Trainers experience that all the time. And it always makes us feel like, like good, like, like, how can I not? Yeah, that's right. I'm the shit, you know, I'm magic. I got this, like, this touch, you know, and the owner's like, wow, what did you do? And, and you're just kind of like, I'm just me, you know, and like, it feels really good. But what we're really talking about is we're influencing a dog. Like our presence is an influence. And we tell that to our clients. If we like, I can't tell you how many of my clients have come to me after being to another trainer that made them feel terrible because they got nervous when their dog saw another dog. And they're like, you can't be nervous. Like, well, if it was that easy to control our emotions, you know, dog trainers wouldn't have that much to do because, you know, managing emotions is a large portion of what we do with ourselves and with our clients and with our clients' dogs. Like, that's the trick is managing the emotions to, to a large extent. So, the point is my emotional responses are not voluntary responses, right? If there were, we'd have a lot less crime. We'd have a whole lot less problems if people had absolute control of their emotions. So people will tell their clients, you know, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're the problem because you get nervous. Well, how do you make them not nervous? You don't just mm. you know, stop doing that, you know? <laughs> Except that we're dogs, right? Like I think most yeah. dog trainers would accept that if you have a really scared dog, you know, you can't just tell them to cut it out. Like, you know, if your dog's yeah. just freaking out about, fireworks or something you know that's an emotional response like right right yeah so so like i tell them i understand that you feel this way and you've been conditioned to feel this way my job is to create situations where you succeed so you're no longer conditioned to feel that way right like i just gotta change the conditioning just like i would with a dog and uh but the point is when we say that what we're saying is your emotions influence your dog's behavior Right. We all know this. We all see this. We all engage in this. Yet somehow when we go to change the dog's behavior, we tend to not start at influence. So let me walk you through the spectrum real quick. Right. So we have influence. We have communication. We have pressure. We have compulsion. And then this is where it gets a little thing. I think I'm going to add uh, we have past compulsion. We have violence and past violence. We have abuse. Right. So. I really believe that from a moral perspective, from an ethical perspective, and from a practical perspective, we want to stay as far down that scale as possible, as we possibly can, right? Like, I'm not saying we never, we should never go into the abuse uh, category, right? But again, you'll notice also that these lines are a little nebulous. In other words, like, uh, you can't necessarily, like, 
one of my examples, I learned this in high school and it was really uh, sort of pivotal for the rest of my life. Somebody told me, you can't look at a thermometer and tell me where the hot stops and the cold starts, right? Yet we consider these to be opposites, but they're really varying degrees of the same thing, right? And that's how most opposites are. Like darkness doesn't exist as the absence of light. Heat or cold doesn't exist as the absence of heat, right? These are all, all these opposites that we think of are just varying degrees of the same thing. So force-free training doesn't exist. It's just an absence of compulsion, right? It's also massively subjective. Like, you know, what is abusive to one dog might be compulsion to another or, you know, whatever, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's another reason why we want to stay on the very minimum end of that. But also, if you think about the things that people call us for, like, like so what is the most robust persistent behaviors that dogs have pulling on the leash jumping on people when they come in the door barking at the doorbell barking through the window chasing squirrels chasing rabbits these are all things that were taught well the, besides the predatory behaviors these were things were all taught via influence not via communication they didn't go to communication right dogs know when we grab our keys what that means when we put our shoes on they know like like jay jay jack will tell you that his dogs know whether they're going to work with him or not, whether they're leaving the house with him based, based on how he's dressed. Like when he's getting his stuff together, if he's dressed one way, the dogs get all excited. If he's dressed another way, they don't even move, right? He didn't try to teach that, but that's influence. I'm really right? curious about your, uh, what, what were you calling it with the, the levels? Did you have a the term spectrum? for that? Yeah, the yeah. Spectrum. So I'm really curious how you define those things because like, for example, especially when you get further up that, it gets mm-hmm. harder to differentiate you know like what's the difference between violence and abuse yeah well and like i i hesitate like i've been dancing around whether i was going to include that violence level or not um and uh and i may not it may not make it to the final my final evaluation but right now i'm feeling like it's a little more that makes it a little more clear so that's the other thing too it's like that like uh, it, it, there's this in philosophy, there's like this mountain analogy thing that I recently ran across. And basically the idea is if you're walking towards a mountain, there's going to be some time where the ground is going to start to rise. You start to have some, some foothills and things like this. Um, at some point in time, there's going to be a place where you're not quite sure. Am I off the mountain or on the mountain yet? I don't really know. Right. And so the the little philosophical rhetorical trick that they'll go is. So therefore, if you can't tell the exact moment when you're on or off the mountain, then you really can't say for sure whatever, whether you're on or off the mountain. And I think that's nonsense. I think certainly if you're standing at the summit of Mount Everest, you know, you're on the mountain. And if you're standing, you know, on a, a plane in Iowa, you know, you're not on the mountain, right? Like, like there is, you can, there, there, just because the exact moment of transition isn't clear, you can clearly decide when you're in one place or another. And, and so along this spectrum, there's a lot of gray areas, as you pointed out, that are going to overlap based on the dog. Um, I also think it's hard for people, for people to, to objectively view, like uh, evaluate their own, place on that spectrum you know though like everyone can think of trainers that we would think of as being abusive um i don't think they would think of themselves as being abusive no because i I don't think there are many people that think they are abusive and can continue to do it you know but there are a lot of people that justify it to themselves 
Yeah. And so that's that's another good reason why we must stay as low on that level as we can. Like like all of this is like like there's so many reasons why we want to be hesitate to add conflict and pressure and friction to the training and so many reasons why we why it's better to avoid that. And that's just another one is like is like if, if normal is whatever you, you're used to. Right. Some of the training practices that I did when I started, I think now were were absolutely abusive. But I didn't know that at the time because, again, abuse is kind of a moving target, too. Right. 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 So like an example that I'll use a lot is like if your dog has, you know, cancer, bone cancer, and they say we want to cut off his leg, uh, then that is the kind and loving thing to do to cut the leg off. Right. But if your dog doesn't have bone cancer, it would be abusive to cut your dog's leg off for fun. Right. So that line also varies based on what's the alternative outcome. Right. Like what is, you know, uh, and what happens is dog, dog trainers who are very heavy handed have done this great job of convincing themselves that every dog is like a euthanasia case. Right. Like like if he jumps on grandma and knocks her down, he's going to be put down. Well, you can manage that, though, while you train it. Like, it's not like you have two options, like, you know, bring the hammer guy down on the dog or he's going to kill grandma when he jumps on her next time. Like, you can put the dog on a leash. You can crate the dog. You can visit grandma somewhere else while you work on these things. This is not something that needs to be solved today. Yeah, You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's go back, though, because I feel like we, like, I don't know. I feel like you covered a hell of a lot of that Let's go right back to the to the beginning a second, because I, I really uh, this is part of the reason I wanted to speak to you is because I really agree wholeheartedly about what you're talking about with tribalism. Between you know, I feel like that has been like a real issue in the dog training world is, is the whole us against them putting yourself in camps or even camps within camps, you know, and and hating everyone else. And it's it's a massive problem. And like the more I think about this, because I've been thinking about it a lot over the last year, I just feel like I've maybe like exposed myself to a lot of different ideas and stuff like that. And I really feel like we're going to get to a place like a lot of people. I think a lot of people view this as almost like a war, you know, like either positive is going to win or balanced is going to win, you know, and and I, I really don't think that's the case. I, I think that ultimately we get to a point where people just stop calling themselves positive and balanced trainers. And we're all just become dog trainers. And th it's not a case of positive or balanced wins. They just merge, right? And we just have we just have dog training, right? And everyone has their own, everyone's still going to have their own opinion about what they like and what they don't like, and just like anything, right? Um, but I don't think, I think the, the label that we need to take up, to your point, is just being a dog trainer, as opposed to being a positive trainer or being a balanced trainer or any other label. Man, you know, I have really mixed feelings on that, on that, on that position. Okay, like, give, give it to me then, Chad. Um, and I, and I will fully admit that I'm, for a long time, I've been really against that idea. I mean, and I might be wrong, like a fully, full disclosure, I'm, I'm sort of rethinking this. Uh, but like, um, the way I've always thought about it is like, uh, you know, hey, do you want to get something to eat? Yeah, yeah. Where do you want to go? Oh, just a restaurant. Well, what kind of restaurant? I don't care. I don't want to label it. Like, like it doesn't matter. Like, or more importantly, your buddy goes, "Hey, I've opened a restaurant." Well, what kind of restaurant is it? It's just a restaurant. Well, no, but what kind of food do you serve? I, it's just a restaurant. I don't want. To, I don't want to get into this category thing. Like, well, do you serve spaghetti? No, no, no. It's not that kind of restaurant. 
Well, what kind of restaurant is it? It's just a restaurant. Well, do you do hamburgers? No, it's not that kind of restaurant either. Well, you know, well, what do you serve? Well, we serve a lot of rice, fried rice. We do chow mein. And go, oh, so it's a Chinese restaurant. I don't want to label it, bro. I don't want to label yeah, it. Wait, I don't hey. know about this, so Chad, because so, this is, you're talking about categories here. Like, you know, you can say, hey, I do IGP training. I do Hoopers training. I do agility training, mm -hmm. right? Those are the categories. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, we could change it. We could change it. Like, <laughs> like we could change it to a church. You know, what, what kind of, I have a church. Well, what kind of church do you have? You know, like, 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 cause Dog training shouldn't be religion though. This is the problem, but, Chad. <laughs> I, I hear you. But the, but the, so, so the thing is, I guess what I'm getting at is, is, is like, I think people want to have an idea before they walk into a training. Okay. To the average dog owner, mm -hmm. dog training is dog training. Like, by the way, almost no one asked me, are you balanced or force free? Almost yeah, no one asked totally. me, right? But they do want to know about my methods. They do want to know, right? But for a lot of people, they don't. A lot of people, they just sign up for I can't tell you how many people have come into me after having a bad experience with a, a trainer who's either too soft or too heavy. Or I shouldn't say that. Um, who is inept at what they're doing, so they do more of it and do it harder. Right. Whether that be you're inept with food and so you just keep upping the value of food or you're inept with compulsion. So you have to keep upping the level of compulsion um, that where they thought that's just what dog training was. And they see me do something different. They go, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Like like there is amongst a large portion of the dog owning public uh, 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 a false belief that there's a consensus in dog training that it's kind of all this homogenous thing. And it's it's like you call a plumber, you expect them all to have the same, you know, it doesn't matter which plumber you call to put your water heater in, it's gonna be put in according to code and, and it's gonna work just fine, right? And I think people see us as a service industry, not as like a skill-based, uh, like you understand architectures, the architects are different. Like you look for the architect whose style you like, right? But they don't do that with dog training. They just look for the cost, convenience, you know, whatever, and uh, maybe referrals. But uh, I think that if we don't call out the distinctions between different types of trainers, if we don't create some sort of way that people can sort of check into what they're looking for, um, we're going to send a lot of people to those trainers that we were talking about before that are just, you know, really uh, not going to do a whole lot of good things for the dog or for the dog owner. And then uh, they won't know that. And, you know, like every dog trainer who's good has a list of clients who came to them after being failed by other trainers. And uh, that feels good when that happens. I'm not going to lie when somebody says, I've been to six trainers and you're the first person that's ever been able to help me. That makes me feel good. Um, and it would make anybody feel good. You know, that's right. I, 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 I'm better than these six or I'm a better fit than these six. If you're being really honest, it's just about person, often just about personalities. But um, what we, when we see that, we, we tend to assume that that's what normally happens, but it's not what normally happens because I, I actually, you know, because I work at a busy dog uh, boarding and daycare facility, I get to see a lot of people who, who have, who let their dogs drag them in all the time and will mention, you know, hey, you know, we can help you with training. And they go, oh, we tried training. It doesn't work. And th so when they go to a trainer that doesn't mesh with them and th that they don't feel comfortable with, they don't feel right with, more often than not, they're not going to seek help again. And so I, the, I feel the like... Is, 
though, Chad, I just I just don't see how the labels help with this. So to go back to your analogy of the plumbers, it's not mm. like you can go to it's not like all plumbers are created equal. You know, they don't have the labels. However, you can say there's a good plumber and a bad plumber and you can still talk about that. So even if if we were in the same position as plumbers here, where we don't have mm -hmm. labels, we don't need the label to differentiate between good trainers and bad trainers in just the same way that the plumbers don't. Yeah, I, I again, I don't know. I, I don't know that I'm right on this. Like, I, I, I am, I am persuadable on this, right? Um, because I do see what you're saying. Um, I, I, I am of the opinion right now that 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 we need better ways to describe what we do that are that are more. Uh, uh, so you want a new label? <laughs> well, I mean, that seems. But again, I think I'm going to lose this battle. I think I'm going to lose this battle because I have been trying to come up with new labels for years now. Oh my now. God, Chad. And nothing, this is nothing where you're sticks. losing me, man. <laughs> nothing sticks. The label is um, dog trainer, Chad. That's the label. <laughs> but, but see, again, I just, I, I, I like, I like more clarity. The clarity doesn't come in the label though, Chad. It comes in the everything that comes around that. You know, you can show, you can do the social media. You can show how you train. You can show your reviews. You can show, you know, there's so much you can show that it doesn't have to all be contained in a label. And actually, I think the label is is really misleading, right? And this is a big part of the problem with labels is I've met people that call themselves positive trainers that could very easily be considered balanced trainers. And I've met balanced trainers that call themselves balanced trainers that could very easily be considered positive trainers. And it's more about almost what, just like you spoke about influence earlier, circles of influence, that kind of thing. It's almost just what community they fell into seemingly sometimes. Whereas actually, you know, there are a lot of people that are kind of like in a middle ground that could actually kind of assume either label and like it wouldn't seem out of place yeah no like so like let's i mean we'll step away from the label debate right now because i'm i'm, I'm not married <laughs> i'm not married to my idea i have i have concerns and i'll see how it shakes out like i'm not as adamant as i once was so i'll just leave it at that but i, I think I, you're, you're right in this one sense the fiction that we've been told that we have adopted willingly and knowingly is this idea that you have force free on this side or balanced on this side and like they couldn't be further apart. But the reality is most of us are kind of concentrated in that center around that dividing line. Um, or I should say most of the good trainers are actually off center towards the force free side. That's really interesting that you say that Chad, because I feel like that's, that's actually a, probably a very unpopular position. I imagine in, in the balance community to say something like that. Well, this is the weird thing. Here's this little thing where balanced trainers often talk out of both sides of their mouth. And and I've called them out on this before. And, and you know, I got like I and I consider myself a balanced trainer. I fit into that category. I do use I, I do use prong collars and e-collars and corrections. Uh, I very rarely use prong collars and e-collars, but I do use them. Um and I, I feel like I'm quite good with them. Uh, but I do have I do have them in my toolbox, and and I will recommend them in certain cases. Um, but I'll also work with a, a head halter or a, or a flat collar, or you know, like uh, my most valuable training tool aside from a standard leash is my treat pouch. Um, like I I'm I love using food, like but um, but I don't avoid using negative consequence when it's the best thing when I think it's the best thing for the dog. To me, Chad, 
to to me the the trainers I've come to admire the most are the people that actually just don't get into this at all. You know, uh, like um, recently I had Jens Frank on the podcast, Bob Bailey. These are people that can talk at like balanced conferences or positive conferences and just fit in and no one like no one bats an eyelid. And it's really interesting. I think, I think that's really fascinating that the, those, those people to me are examples of like where that's like what I look up to. That's, I want to be like that. You know, I, I, I just want to just not get involved in all this shit and just train dogs and do it, do it to a high level, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like, and, and, and the, but what I'm saying is that even though I fit into the balance camp on paper in my heart, I feel like I'm a, a, a belong in the force free camp. Like they don't accept me because I sometimes will will use some some form of compulsion or correction, um, but my heart is aligned with theirs much more closely to the, with a lot of people in the balance camp. But I think like here's like I said, balance trainers will tell you like 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 they go oh people have this imagination idea that if because I say I'm balanced I'm always just jerking the hell out of dogs on prong powers or zapping with e powers and that's not the truth like I do ninety percent of my stuff with positive reinforcement like I barely I just use that the, the that compulsion to supplement it and people just have this wrong idea my dogs are having a great time I want my dogs to have a great time when I'm training them and I'm like awesome I like you you sound like we're right you sound like we're you know, kindred yeah. spirits. But then the next post, they'll be like, you know, all oh, these damn force free trainers, like, like they can't be effective without corrections. And I'm like, dude, if 90% of what you do is positive reinforcement, then the force free trainer has to, by definition, be at least able to do 90% of what you're already doing. So why are you saying they're ineffective? And that's where the tribalism becomes a problem because that other person has, has said, I don't want to correct dogs. They go, well, I want to correct dogs, or I just want to is probably the wrong word, but I correct dogs. You choose not to. This is what makes us different. This is the thing that distinguish, distinguishes the two of us. And in my head, I've suddenly magnified that to be the most important thing about what I do. This is why the label, that line is destructive, because if the thing that makes me separate from you is sometimes I'll use a squirt bottle to stop something you won't, then I identify myself as the squirt bottle guy, right? <laughs> yeah. And and now suddenly I'm all about squirt bottles. Like now if, if I want to draw a distinction, I'm going to talk about how I am so good with the squirt bottle or how valuable the squirt bottle is or whatever, right? That becomes the thing that becomes important about me because that's what makes me different from you. And so I, I've always said it is a weird thing to define ourselves by what we won't do to a dog. Like I've always found like that the the force free label or the, the the positive only is what it was when I first was coming up, you know, um, when I always thought that was a weird thing by saying I am good because I will not do X, Y, Z. But the only thing that's more absurd than that is defining myself by what I'm willing to do to a dog. It's interesting. You said the like and, and this is so true. You said I am good because I won't do this. And, and this this really irritates me. I feel like more and more the label has become the most important thing, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, I see this a lot in the positive training community, but that's probably just because that's the community that I've spent most of my time in, um, you know, where it's like, as long as I'm 
a positive trainer, I'm like by default good. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, what are you talking about? Like that there's a whole there's a whole skill set here. Like that is that is not reflective of that whatsoever. You can be a really crappy positive trainer. And the same I imagine it goes on. I, I don't I don't really uh hang out in that community as much, but like I imagine the same would go on in the balance community where it's like so, so maybe this is why we're missing on the labels. Okay. Right. Go ahead. Because because I can't I came up in the balance community and 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 I I I, I always have to on, be honest about the history. Um, before Caesar Milan got on TV, you could not publish a book, at least not here in the states, about dog training that 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 talked about compulsion at all. Like the 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 force free community had their hooks into the publishing industry such that they could get those things canceled before they ever made it to the shelf. Really, um, I'm surprised yeah. by that because some of the most popular books are compulsion books, right? Monks of New Scare, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. Right? So 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 up until the early '80s, that was the case, right? Then a period of time came near the end of the '80s. And uh, early 90s, because I started training professionally in, in March of 1993. Um, so uh, it's, you know, been 30 years. Uh, and when I when I, that came out, like almost all of the magazines that were available for dog trainers uh, were positive only or at least strongly leaning that way. Mm -hmm. um, dog World was the only one at the time that still would give a nod to compulsion based training but even that was was largely it was it was it was a minor part of the of the magazine's focus uh okay. most every you had the whole dog journal um uh, like most of the magazines were very much compulsion free and very much uh uh very vocal about it it wasn't like they just didn't cover it they talked about the 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 importance of being force free and whatnot, um, and like I knew a lot of people were trying to get things published. And this was before you had self publishing, you know, as as an op, really as a, as a viable opportunity. Um, and just people couldn't things couldn't get things published. And when the Dog Whisperer was about to air, there was a huge public relations campaign to get it canceled. And uh, the IACP, uh, International Association of Canadian Professionals, was a pretty young organization at that time. I had pretty much just joined. I hadn't. I don't think I'd been in a, a member for a year when this whole thing started with Caesar. But uh, our membership mo mobilized to uh, write to National Geographic and keep the guy on the air. Now, none of us knew who Caesar was. But our, our mentality was he's pissing off the right people. So yeah, he must I imagine they might have regretted that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, I think so. But, but there was this massive campaign to keep him off the air. And once he got on the air and became like so popular, that's when the publishing companies finally sort of start, stopped listening to that, that community. So in the balanced community, you have a lot of old dogs older than me who remember what they feel like being belittled and diminished and having their voice taken away by the force free community. So there are long-term resentments there. Um, the problem is, is that uh, uh, they pass that those resentments on to people who, who never, uh, who never lived that way, who never lived under it. And uh, excuse me, um, they pass those resentments on to people who never lived, lived with it. And because of that, they they have created a bogeyman, right? And and they live in fear of having their tools taken away. 
This is the thing. Balanced trainers who are anti, who are really vocal about hating the force free movement. They're all worried about legislation coming down the line, making it illegal for them to train they want, the way they want to train. And uh, and I think we need to be sympathetic to that and empathetic to that, because it's not just like we like what we do and we don't want to and we don't like what you do. They feel like these people will oppress them, given if they get the power again, they will they will start to try and make things illegal. And they oh, are trying think, to. Oh, 100 percent. And and but this actually kind of reminds me of something that's happened here in the UK recently with XL bullies. We've just recently had XL bullies get banned here in the UK. And like this has been something that's been coming up now for like, I don't know, like probably over the last year, you know, the media started making a big deal of uh, dog attacks and whatnot. And the initial response from the XL bully people, and I spoke to an XL bully breeder about this on the podcast recently, which, which uh, yeah, so, you know, the initial response was like a real defensive response, like, you know, just like just anger, basically, you know, uh, about all of these attacks. And, and it was really like a, a us versus them, you know, fuck you guys kind of response. And then as soon as they announced the ban, the kind of attitude in the XL bully community completely shifted from like defensiveness and anger, although, I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't exist, to a far more productive like, you know, now all of a sudden people are sharing videos of their dogs with their children and like, hey, look at these dogs, like they're really nice dogs. You've got this wrong. You know, it was so much more productive. And I really, I feel like it's the same with what you're talking about with, with tools and whatnot. I don't think the correct response is like a, a fuck you guys response. I feel like it's it, what I'm talking about with the labels, where it's like, guys, let's, let's try and have uh, more of a unified conversation about this. Sure, we're not going to agree on everything. I get that. So that's 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 definitely where we agree. Like like and as you as you're talking about like like the label doesn't matter too much. I guess what I'm advocating for is a different way to think about force. Think about compulsion, think about influence, right? Like cuz we all exist on this spectrum going back to the thing. Like so let me run through my my list real quick because we've been sidetracked on that, right? So okay. the first level is influence and and I kind of define influence as, as things where we don't seem to be trying to teach the dog anything, at least from the dog's perspective. The dog isn't is, is the dog is being influenced by our behavior, by our environment, by the things we do, but it doesn't feel like we're trying to teach the dog something. Like, so an example of influence that I do is I call this seating, S-E-E-D-I-N-G, not seating, but seating a position, like especially the heel position. So I'll be standing there and I'll just put some food down next to my left foot. I don't say anything to the dog. I don't call attention to it. Dog comes over, finds the food, or he sees me do it, comes over there, grabs the food. And while he's eating that food, I'll walk up a step or two and put some food down by my left foot again. The dog looks up, looks at my left foot, goes, oh, cool, there's food there again. And I do this, and I just keep doing this. And what happens is this starts, the dog starts to naturally, instinctively, habitually, however you want to say it, look for my left foot. Just checks in with my yeah, left foot I think foot Susan Garrett has a whole thing about that, right? Like re the reward zone, I think she calls it. Yeah. So like, uh, uh, but the whole point is, is, is I'm not teaching the dog to do anything. Like the dog doesn't feel like I'm asking them to do anything. That food's there, whether they look at me or not. Right. And the, that's not always there when they look. And sometimes they hang out there, go, this is where food often shows up. So I'm going to hang out there. That's influence. 
right? The dog's not being told what to do. Uh, and I think this is the most powerful place, as I said before, this is where we get all these robust behaviors that are resistant to extinction and punishment is these things that the dog just figures out on their own. Uh, now, it's not like shaping because shaping, you're very clearly the dog is trying to guess what you want. There's very clearly when you're shaping the dog, there's very clearly a uh, conversation happening. That's communication. It reminds right? me of so, like nudge theory. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds yeah, yeah, me yeah. of that. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to run your parade, but there's a, I, I love the podcast. If books could kill, okay. And I, is it all? Is it bullshit? Is it? <laughs> well, I, they did a whole episode on that. What they do is they take airport books, as they call them, yeah. that have been really influential, and they break them down and uh, they go over the science and stuff. And that it's it's a really fun podcast. It's uh, the okay, guys I'm are pretty. Check cool. I'm gonna check out. But yeah, if books could kill, look up the one on Nudge. It's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's okay i'm not i'm not married to it don't worry uh, but uh anyway the point is is like so we have influence then we have communication that's when i'm trying to teach the dog something specifically that's where most trainers start is communication even though we talk about influence all the time like you're stressed that's causing your dog to react or you know i can just touch the leash and change the dog or i have the right energy or whatever that's all influence right and we work in that realm but we don't know how to teach it generally because it's kind of nebulous and it's you know like like again i hate the word energy but i don't have a better word to replace it with Right. Like there is this thing like we can we have this, for lack of a better word, energy that dogs can pick up on. But I don't like that word because it's it, it feels very much like, you know, we're sitting around chanting with crystals and aligning our chakras and that sort of stuff. And, and like and if you're into that, that's cool. But it's not my bag. Like it's not how I see the world. So uh, but anyway. So we go from influence to communication. And there is this nebulous area in between where we're kind of on the edge. Is this influence or is this communication? Right. And then from communication, we get into pressure. That's when we're telling the dog, not only, hey, you should try this, but I want you to try this. This matters to me what you do. That's pressure because now we introduce conflict. Like the dog wants to do one thing. I want them to do another thing. And now there's social conflict, if nothing else. And that's really important. People don't realize that, that, that when you are trying to convince the dog to do something that maybe they're not sure about, you're adding tension to the situation. No matter how soft and gentle and kind you are, you're creating a, 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 a tension within the dog between what he wants to do and his desire to maintain the relationship, right? So pressure is always a little bit of conflict, no matter how well you use it, right? There's a little bit of conflict there. So from pressure, then we get to compulsion and there's a like like you the dog is trying to get into the street there's a car coming and you have to go no don't and then like there's again the nebulous area if the dog leans to the end of the leash and i just hold tight and don't move is that compulsion i'm forcibly restricting their behavior but i feel like that's more like influence because it's neutral it's a new right but i don't know these are arguments that i can have and debates i can have and like i said when i started this this is still kind of half-baked but so these are the questions I have about it. But when we drag a dog away from something that's like they're trying to, you know, roll in a dead animal or uh, eat or, you know, eat something that they found on the side of the road, every trainer in the world, whether they call themselves force free or not, will use compulsion in that moment. They will drag the dog away from the thing if they can, because they, they understand that at that point in time, their ideology doesn't mean anything if the dog dies. Right. So uh, we will use compulsion at that point. Um and we can also use compulsion to, again, compel uh, a response. Uh, 
But I think everybody can agree if we all are honest and we all have a nice conversation about it. I think everybody, regardless what what camp they belong to, can agree that that we probably shouldn't do that any more than we have to. Not only because it, it, it it's it's unpleasant for us and it's unpleasant for the dog, but also because like like old school balance training, like uh, if you go, if you, you know, there, there was in, in, in Keeler's book, he talks about the light line, which is a, a disappearing line. It's a thin piece of line. What, uh, what uh, Tony Anchetta used when I saw him and Tony Anchetta is like the heir to the Keeler legacy. He, you know, worked with Bill Keeler. He lived in his house for a time. Uh, after Bill died, he continued to work with Bill's son until Bill's son died. So he is the heir. And he was using masonry line, nylon masonry line, which is what they use to <coughs> tie between stakes to make sure the, the 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 lines are straight. That's what they're using. So it's tied to, basically tied to the dog's collar. There's a tab in between, but um, they're shortening up, right? You have this long line. And uh, in the book, Bill says the light line is not there to deliver a correction, but to ensure the dog doesn't avoid an earned correction in other words you have to go through this whole trick of making sure the dog can't doesn't think he can get away with disobedience right so when you rely on compulsion that's what you have to do you have to trick the dog into thinking you can always get them no matter what um uh and that's why it becomes such a, a like you don't have to do that if the dog wants to do the thing right if the dog wants to do the thing you don't have to do that so from a practical point of view, if I can get the dog to want to do something, I have to use less compulsion and the dog is going to be objectively more reliable in most circumstances. Now, you could make the argument, yeah, but when the chips are really down, you need that compulsion. That may be the case in certain with certain dogs. And, you know, I'm not going to say that it's not. But uh, the point is, is we want to even a, even granting that as a truth, it still makes sense to use as little of that as possible because, the more the dog wants to do it, the better experience the dog has in training, the more enthusiastic they're going to be about it, and the more reliable they're going to be in general. Maybe that 1% of the times you need to add that extra oomph, but uh, we shouldn't be seeking that out. You know what I'm saying? Is is what my point is. Um, so, and then, of course, beyond compulsion, you have violence. And that is, that's usually when the trainer's a little frustrated and giving the dog a little bit of an extra fuck you. Like, like, you know, you made me work too hard for this and now I'm not going to, now I'm going to kind of get, get back at you a little bit. It's not, it's not good training, uh, but people are people and it happens. And, uh, and then beyond that, you get the abuse, which is again, the line between violence and abuse is pretty, pretty thin. And, and Jay, Jay Jack, I think he's been on your show as you yeah, done, Jay. He has. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like Jay has a theory that, that. Uh, anytime you let emotions leak into the correction, that is by definition abuse. That is yeah. That's like, why I divered, and when you said violence, it's like it gets a little uh, I don't know, it gets a little gray differentiating yeah. between violence and abuse. You know, yeah, and that's why I'm not sure I want to do it. But I do believe because I know that I have let emotions leak into my corrections before, but I don't think it was abusive. You know what I'm saying? Like, 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 and I, and I've had this conversation with Jay. It's not like, I think like everyone's this. got frustrated with a dog mm -hmm. before. So I know what you mean for sure. The word vi violence is quite a strong word though. You know, violence sounds very harsh. Yeah. And, it, <laughs> and like I said, it may not make it into the final, into the final, uh, but it's weird. That's the interesting thing. I get more pushback on the idea of, idea of violence than abuse. Like, uh, I say well, it's it, just because we can all agree what abuse is. 
Well, maybe yeah. we can't, but we can, we all have something in our head when we think of abuse. Yeah. But when yeah. you use the word violence and you put that lower on the scale. Yeah. Like, so like differentiating between violence and abuse is kind of difficult. Yeah. So like, but I'm, I'm using a more of a progressive idea of violence here too. Like, uh, <laughs> um, you know, like, like, uh, I do believe that if, if you're doing something. You're talking about like retribution. Well, yeah. Retribution might be good, but, but like, I guess what I mean is like, if, okay, when I'm driving at night and I come to a red light and there's nobody around, the only reason I'm not going through that light is there might be a cop hiding behind that bush over there. Right. Like I, I should say that, but that's not true. I shouldn't say that. It's not true. Um, I tell myself that sometimes for the sake of the analogy, but the real reason is it's the rules I've been taught to follow. You stop at the red light. And I, and, and I do sometimes think about it and I, I'm not going to say I've never driven through a red, red light at four in the morning, but it's pretty rare. Um, and I feel dumb sitting there waiting at a light when, I can look in all directions. There's nobody coming. Like there's no harm in me breaking this law. But I guess what I say, so that's compulsion, right? Why, like, why, why though, Chad, why even like spend the time thinking about this? Because this is like, you know, like this is this kind of line of thinking has been explored so much with Lima, humane hierarchy, you know. Um, because uh, this is the way my brain works. This is the way my brain works. Um, and also there's so much, the problem, the criticism of those ideas, Lima, humane hierarchy and stuff is there are, there are always things that seem to fall outside of that, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember who I was speaking to recently that was talking about, you know, you know, for example, it doesn't take into account experience and it doesn't take into account time to get a, to get a result, you know? And, and sometimes when you've been doing this for 10 years, 15 years, you know what is going to work. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't need to go through five steps to get there. Or, well, that makes it sound like I jump into something really horrible or something. But yeah. you know what I mean? You don't have to like, you don't, you, you just know what is, you just, if you've seen this a thousand times before and you know how to resolve it and you don't have to like really structured go through like some kind of plan. Yeah, no, like, like you can, like, like when, like a good example would be, let me finish my thing on violence real quick and then I'll get onto this because I want to clarify. Okay, but I'm, I'm really worried about your time because I want to talk about something else too. Yeah, just let me, <laughs> let me, let me real quick see if I can sum this up real quick. I guess my point is, is like when you don't do something simply because you're worried about what's going to happen if you don't do, if you do it, right? If the, the only reason you do something is to avoid an unpleasant con, con, uh, consequence. Okay. That is, that is in my progressive view, a form of emotional violence, right? I don't have to, like, I don't have to put the gun in your face if it's implied, right? You know what I'm saying? Sure. And it's, right. But if I'm doing it for a mixed reason, like, I think this is an okay thing to do, but also I kind of don't want to, but there's a consequence that would be compulsion. Like I go to work every day because I want, I don't want to be poor, but I also go to work every day because that's what I do, right? That's compulsion. Right. Violence is when I have no other reason for doing it except for I don't want something bad to happen. That's in my how I'm thinking of it in my head. So so just, just wanted to clarify that. Um, because that's where I was going. But yeah, you're right. The big example of where like when you're running a daycare and two dogs get into a scrap, 
like you don't start least invasive, minimally aversive. You just get in there and you separate those dogs. That's a really good analogy. That's the kind of thing I was looking for. Yeah, that's a great analogy. You know, you don't get the cookie out and then you don't try this and you don't, like you just like, you know, it, you know what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Dogs are getting hurt. Stop them. Like <laughs> get them safe as quickly as you can by any, any means necessary. Yeah. So I, I do agree with that. And I guess that's why my framework that I'm proposing here that I'm that I think and it doesn't have a moral implication. It's all about practical considerations. It's all about we want to we want to use like it's like I always say punishment or compulsion should be like medicine. We want to use the minimum effective dose. Right. Uh, but we also want wide margins, you know, so understanding that idea. I can do, because I want to use the minimum effective dose, I've done a whole lot of work to learn how to use other strategies effectively so that the dog is buying in the whole way through. And I'm a better trainer and I dare say a better person because of that. And I don't mean that like I'm, it's not virtue signaling. I'm not on a moral high ground. What I mean is that to be really intuitive with a dog, you have to be really intuitive with yourself. I have to have to be able to train the dog without letting my emotions leak into it, without, without letting my frustrations cause me to be unpleasant to the dog when I don't have to be. That requires a great deal of self-awareness and emotional regulation on my part. And so that forces me to be a better human being in all aspects of my life, not just with the dog. When we allow ourselves to just take the easy path in anything, whether it be dog training or whatever, trying to develop a skill. When we take the shortcut, we allow ourselves to take the shortcut that requires less personal development. We cut ourselves off at the knees. And so I think there is, there's a lot of personal growth that happens. I, I posted something, I shared something from, uh, Oh, who was it? It was a horse trainer. I think it was, uh, I think it was, uh, I don't remember, but it was something about the fact that that feel developing feel with a horse is uh, another word for, uh, or is the result of uh, our own emotional regulation, our own emotional sensitivity. Like we have to, like it's how in touch are you with yourself is how you develop that feel with the animal. And you have to, you have to develop that sensitivity. And I think to be a good dog trainer, especially in a, uh, in a reward-based model, you have to develop that. I think it's a necessity. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not a nice thing to have. It's the whole thing. It's the whole oh, enchilada. Oh man, there's so I I I wish we had more time because there's so much I want to like. We can't spend too long on this because I really want to get to other stuff. But like you mentioned, Caesar Milan earlier, and actually, like you know, we we <laughs> almost everything Caesar does is is very yeah, not not great. But some of the stuff he does when he's talking about exactly what you're talking about, the connection, like the energy stuff like that like there is like and i think that's the way with uh life you know oftentimes it's like a grain of truth and stuff you know um and and that was one of the problems with the dominance theory stuff as well like you know it's not entirely unfounded it's just you had a grain of truth that got blown into like such a like it became like so over exaggerated the the importance of it but but there is like a, a tiny grain of truth there and i guess as you get more experienced you you kind of get better at like picking out that the grain of truth in these things yeah i mean social hierarchies exist they do absolutely and uh but you know that's not how we view our relationships you know what i'm saying that's like 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 
like uh like i'm a guest on your podcast right now and i understand that and 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 because of that there's a certain there there is a certain power dynamic in this conversation like i don't feel it like i don't feel it more having the conversation but we both know it's there like i know that when I leave this thing, you could edit the hell out of this to make me sound like a complete jerk. Um, or maybe you could edit and make <laughs> so me sound good. like I'm not the jerk I am. But <laughs> but but there's there is there is a power differential there. And not only that, there's just the the manners thing. I am a guest in your home, so I'm going to behave like a good guest, right? You know, and you are the host, so you're gonna behave like a good host. There is a hierarchy in this conversation, but it is not what's driving the conversation. It's we're aware of it, but it's not a major part of it. And it's the same thing with dogs. Yes, at the end of the day, the dog wants one thing and I want the other. If we're both absolutely committed, I will get what I want. If we are both absolutely committed, I will win because I have the thumbs and the big brain and I can I can put her in a crate or whatever. Like I can physically make her do what I need her to do. But I don't want her thinking of our relationship that way. You know what I'm saying? I don't, that's not the, that's not the conversation I want to have with my dog is, is I will make you if you don't choose to. Like, I mean, that's it's not- the same with, with any relationship, like parent, child, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it's the same thing. Absolutely. Anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. Cause look, I, I want to, um, I really want to talk to you about, uh, some of the leash pressure stuff, Chad, because it's obviously something that you're quite well known for. And it's, I feel like for me personally, I feel like it's a massive hole in my knowledge. It's not something I've really played with at all. Um, so I'm really curious to get into it. I have Matthias Lenz on the podcast recently and he was talking, he said to me, I can't remember if this was on air or off air, but he was talking about how he felt like it was like a massive game changer learning that stuff. Um, and he felt like it was massively powerful, but he also acknowledged that he thought it was actually particularly difficult to convey to clients and to teach clients. Um, so anyway, I'm just really, I'm curious if you could kind of tell us like what that is for people that aren't really familiar with it. And I don't know, just tell us a bit about it. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I grew up balanced. So the leash was the main part of my training tool, right? Like we didn't, we didn't, uh, early days, I didn't really use food much at all. Like I was probably 10 years into the game before I bought my first treat pouch. So the leash was all you had leash and collar. Um, and of course, uh, when that's all you had, like if every, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. But what people don't say about that is like, there's different types, types, types of nails. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you, you little finishing nail, you get a little, little tap, 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 a big, you know, 16 penny framing nail. You have to whack kind of hard. Um, and I, I always, I always wanted the leash to be. I've always felt good about leashes. I always liked leashes. I always liked the, the, the idea of them. And it's just, people don't think about it a whole lot, right? Like we just, it's, it's the most simple thing in the world. You have a rope clipped to your dog's neck, basically it, you know, that's basically, uh, and, uh, it seems like the function is very clear. It's just to restrain and prevent the dog from doing things. Right. Um, and then they go, okay, now we can use it to make the dog stop doing things by giving leash corrections or whatever. But, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you talk with Jay about this, but he talks, so he says, he says the one thing that humans and dogs disagree about fundamentally is how fast to walk and how far to walk. Right. Like everything else were pretty similar, but, but, uh, dogs walk faster than people and their social distance is greater than people. So like, uh, Jay has this exercise that he'll do 
uh, and I've stolen it from him. I do it in my workshops too, but he'll, he'll have one of the workshop attendees stand next to them and he'll say, okay, we're going to walk forward. And as we walk forward, I'm going to drift off to the side. And I want you to tell me when you feel like we're no longer walking together. Right. And they go, okay. So they start walking, starts drifting off the side. They say, stop. Jay has a six foot leash in his hand. He tosses one end of them. It's almost always right about six feet. Our social distance is six feet. That's why leashes are six feet. That's why the standard leash is six foot because the dog is further away from that. We feel like they're no longer connected with us. Um, dogs, on the other hand, they feel connected at a much greater distance. You put that same dog who's pulling on a six foot leash on a 10 or 15 foot leash and almost always they stop pulling. 15 feet, they're, they're good. I'm good at 15 feet, right? So, so with all of the other things we do to dogs that are sort of unpleasant, I had to Google that. That's 1.8 meters. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, sorry. Six foot uh, is 1.8 meters for the UK okay. listeners. Yeah. Well, that's weird because you guys, you guys use miles. We do use miles. Yeah. We're a little bit antiquated with miles for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you, yeah, that's what confuses me about, at least when I go to Australia, it's awful. I know. But when I go to the UK, it's like, oh, miles per hour. And then I talk and feed, they go, I don't understand that. Like, how do you have miles and not feet? I don't get it. Like, Wait, you guys don't use stone to weigh no, things? No, we don't use stone. <laughs> Although I will say, I watched a really good video from a scientist talking about why Fahrenheit is a much better temperature scale than Celsius. Well, we like, use Celsius. Yeah, but but yeah. we use Fahrenheit here. But they, but 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 the 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 big thing is complete rabbit hole but metric makes more sense than than imperial measurements in all cases but this guy's going that's true except in temperature the imperial temperature scale is much better than the than the uh, metric one but anyway i'm not going to make the argument but so, I, six, it, so this hang on let's get back on track so, so, so yeah. six foot 1.8 meters that's like yeah. you feel like that's ideal for most people yeah that's that's where most people feel like they lose that social connection right so um uh with other things that we do to dogs that aren't natural to them, nail trims, crating them, uh, baths or whatever, we try to be a little bit sympathetic. We understand this is going to be a struggle for them. And so we try to make it easier for them. But at least we just slap it on and go, you should get this. And then they don't. And so we end up in this situation where people are fighting with their dogs all the time. So I've really been working on how to make the leash a less conflict-based experience for both the dog owner and the dog. And so um, I have, uh, I've developed like these five levels of leash pressure. I, I do everything in a spectrum. That seems to be how my brain works best, right? But- I'm uh, realizing that. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and, and they're probably very closely related to the spectrum of influence, right? So we have, uh, the first level of pressure is uh, uh, gentle communication. You know, actually you can do, I could, I could add influence in there now that I think about it, but we'll leave that out for now. But it's just, you just say, Hey, come this way. Just like, uh, I, I describe it like maybe you're guiding somebody to their seat. Like you just touch them a little bit this way or you're, you know, or, you know, you're, you're helping a child you know, find, come over here. You know, you're not forcing them. The pressure is clearly saying, Hey, this is the way to go. There's gentle communication. That's level one. Level two is where most people live with their dogs on the leash. And that is, I call I call that ineffective insistence. This is when, you know, this is when the dog is pulling. Like, so you take your dog out for a walk and he's leaning into the leash and you're like, dude, I'm not running with you. I know you want to run, but I'm walking. So I'll walk as fast as I can comfortably walk and I will lean back and restrain you the rest of the way. 
And so you see people all the time, they're kind of leaning back, the dog's kind of leaning forward, and they have this this sort of uneasy compromise as they, as they you know, as they run down the, uh, as they walk fast, they speed walk down the sidewalk, um, the pavement, as you guys would call it. Uh, they, uh, <laughs> they, 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 uh, but the dog, what they don't realize is when the dog does that, the dog goes, oh, you're trying to stop me. But you can't. I win, right? The dog is learning that 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 the owner doesn't want them to walk that fast, but is in a, ineffective at stopping them from walking that fast. Or maybe the dog is just learning that that the game is I pull really hard and you know and I get and I get my way. Whichever way, they end up in that situation where there's no learning happening, at least no positive learning. The dog is learning to continue to pull, and they're learning they're learning to follow the dog, right? Ineffective assist insistence. Level two, nothing good happens in level two. It's just so the third level is effective insist- insistence. And that's that compulsion level we talked about before. Dogs trying to walk in the street and we go, no, and we pulled them out of it. Um, uh, there is a, I hate that. Like, it feels bad to say effective insistence. In, in, insistence. It feels like I don't want to make the dog do things, but there are times when you have to. So, so that's effective insistence. And uh, then the fourth level is the avoidance level. That's when you're starting to try and inhibit a behavior with it. Like that's that's corrective level. And then the fifth level would be the revenge or retribution level, which you know you sort of reference with the with the violence thing. That's when you're that's when you're not only being effective at creating avoidance, but you're also putting a little extra pepper in there because you're a little frustrated, right? So those are your five levels of leash pressure. And I want to say level five is is nothing good ever happens there, but that's not true because for people who live in level two. Level five is the only place where they get any progress whatsoever. And that is they're trying to do something like that. I got to answer my boss on this email real quick while we're walking. The dog keeps pulling the, and they keep hitting the wrong. And they go, stop it. Right. And that's the only time. They go, oh, oh, OK. I got gotcha. you. So they're using a lot more force than necessary because they refuse to use enough force earlier down the line. But even more importantly, they're using that they're in that position because they have failed to teach the dog how to walk on a leash politely. Right. So like in the in the balanced community, leashes are seen as a as a uh, as an inherently aversive thing. Leash pressure is seen by both sides as inherently aversive. Like like uh, and this is one that really bothers me because the leash like like I can use my voice to support or to condemn. I can use my hands to support or discourage. I can use every tool in my toolbox. I can even use food to support or discourage by removing that reward. Like every tool in my toolbox can be used to add enthusiasm or remove enthusiasm. But we look at the leash like it can only be done to reduce enthusiasm. And I think that's ridiculous. I think it's nonsense. And I think it's a blind spot. So I spend a lot of time on conditioning a dog to respond to the leash. I spend a lot of time making the dog feel better with the leash. It, it Oh, about 15, 20 years ago, it was pretty much accepted by every professional dog trainer that leashes make dogs more aggressive. It wasn't even an argument. You say, oh, yeah, that's because the dog's on a leash. He's more aggressive on a leash. But what we now know, but what most trainers now understand, it's not the leash. It's the leash handling. Bad leash handling makes dogs more aggressive. Right. So uh, the whole idea of leash reactivity. Right. Why does that happen? Well, the the analogy I give people is if imagine you're you're in a, like a, a 60,000 square foot room. 
right? A hotel ballroom of some sort, like a huge, huge place. And somebody walks into that room and it's somebody that you are immediately afraid of. Like for whatever reason, you just go, I got a bad vibe off this person. This, this, this cat looks gnarly. I don't want to be around this person, whatever. Like the, whoever scares you most, that's who's coming into, right? I, 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 coming into that room. But they're on the other side of the room. They're not looking at you. They're not interacting with you. You might be a little nervous. You might, blood pressure might go up a little bit. You might look around for the nearest exit and you might keep your eye on them, but you're not going to be that concerned, right? Now imagine that same, that same character steps on an elevator with you. Now, how do you feel? Right? And that leash is like the walls of that elevator. If you have a fight or flight response and I remove fight from the, from the choices, then fight's all you got. But because you also, but because you know you're trapped, your, your, your fight response is going to be faster too. So when the leash feels like a trap, when the leash feels like a, a, a boundary, a cage, if you will, then you're going to have a dog that's going to be more violent on the leash, less comfortable. And that's going to, with certain dogs, that's going to express to more violence. Other dogs are going to express to, you know, more of a learned, helpless, a flattened response, but they're not going to feel comfortable if the leash is seen primarily as a restriction. But if the leash is seen as a tool of support and connection and communication and uh, uh, a conduit of of connection, then suddenly the leash is the dog's ally, not his enemy. And so, so can you give us like a taste of like the kind of things that you do when you're starting sure. out with, with sure. this pressure? Training. Yeah, I have I, I have an exercise that I call look leash treat or look leash love for dogs who aren't food motivated. And this is this is one of these things, Nick, I'm gonna tell you. I tell trainers about this all the time and they go, Oh yeah, okay, I see that. That could be I see how that could be valuable. Yeah, okay. When I get trainers to practice it, they go, Oh my God, this is incredible. So I, I have yet yet to figure out a way to sell the value of this when I talk about it, but I've never let a trainer practice it where they didn't go, Oh my God, this is really cool. All right. So, um, and this kind of fits into that, 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 that realm between influence and communication. Like it's kind of right on the edge. It's in that brackish water between the two. Um, so I have a dog on a leash. I have, uh, I have my treat pouch with high value stuff that the dog likes. Um, and, uh, I might throw some food on the ground. If the dog is too kind of gravitated towards my moment, might throw scatter some food on the ground to get them hunting a little bit. Um, but I want to wait for that moment when that dog checks in with me intentionally. Like they look at me as if they're going to come over and say hi. Right. So before we do this, the dog has to be comfortable in the space, has to be comfortable with me. Like there's a lot of stuff like this does work well, well on fear, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but when the dog looks at me, and starts moving towards me, I'm going to add a little leash pressure. A very soft, very subtle, and it's very, it comes on. Like one of the things people do is they, they want to like pull hard on that leash. When I say add a little leash pressure, they just, they want to compel the dog with the leash. That's not what I'm doing. I want the leash to complement their effort to come to me already. They're coming towards me. The leash is guiding them and they get to me. The leash goes slack the moment before the food comes out. They get to me, leash goes slack, and they get food. So slack predicts food. Pressure predicts slack. Pressure predicts move. Pressure tells dog move towards the source of this pressure, and that will turn on the slack, which will produce the food. Right. So we start, and then I throw some food away. The dog goes away. I wait for them to look, look at me again, and I and to do this, by the way, you're going to have to move backwards. You can't stand still. The dog's too fast. Like you won't 
to if you want to bring pressure on slowly and steadily, you've got to get the dog chasing you because the the distance on that leash is too short. So you're moving backwards and you're guiding the dog into you. So it's a chase game. The leash is supporting them. Sometimes we do it without the leash. Sometimes we do it with the leash. The dog is learning to chase you to get the food, but the leash is complementing them. It's helping them. And so they begin to become, after a few minutes of this, you can, with most dogs, just put like two fingers on the leash and just twist it like that. And they'll turn in that direction because they're learning leash pressure is guiding them to something good. Um, and then I'll do a thing where I'll, I'll put, uh, I'll let the dog see a handful of treats in one hand and I'll have the leash in the other and I'll put them on like either side of the dog's head and I'll be light, light pressure away from the treats. And as soon as the dog looks at the hand, I go, yes. And I'll come over from the other side and reward them. So I'm building this sense that the leash is an ally, not an adversary. And once the dog gets that, you can, so like, again, if I'm working on a heel and the dog stops like a, a half a step back, I can literally just tap the leash with two fingers and the dog will step up, take that next step without ever feeling like he's forced to. The leash is now giving him valuable information, not restricting his choices. And so when we get to that point where we have to go, uh-uh, you can't go, you know, eat that dead bird over there. And the leash is used is being used to take him away from something. He's already got a good, pretty. It doesn't feel as shitty to 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 be pulled away from something because he's You've already got a, a positive association with it. In, in yes, world. exactly. And but the most important part of that is the dog initiates that. This is what's so 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 important about it, and it's the thing that people really don't seem. I seem to have trouble communicating to people why this is so important to me that the dog initiate it. What do you mean the dog initiates it? The leash pressure doesn't start until the dog looks at me. He turns it on every oh, time. Oh, you mean in the initial game, right? Yeah. He is choosing to turn on the leash pressure. And by the way, I do the same thing with my e-collars. It's look, it's look, <laughs> tap, treat. Mm. Right? And so, and so when people say leash pressure is inherently aversive or e-collar is inherently aversive, that, that, if that were the case, the dog wouldn't be choosing to turn on that pressure. Yeah, that confuses a lot of people that, you know, aren't like haven't done a lot of research on your collars because people only think of using it as a as a punishment tool and they don't think of it as as exactly what you're talking about there. Mm -hmm. you know? But uh, probably the easiest way for like people that maybe are more positive to think about that is that's a, exactly the kind of training that a lot of positive trainers would do with deaf dogs, right? Even mm -hmm. with with an e collar, they do that kind of thing to teach recalls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like so, like it's and it doesn't it doesn't help that one of the most biggest voices in the balance training is saying that using low condition low level e collar is actually abusive. Like it doesn't help that that's that that's that's an issue that's out there. Um, uh, I think where people have issues with the low level stuff is when it's used to justify overuse. You know, when mm -hmm. it's used to justify, like, just using it all of the time, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think I I, I I have a real big thing about tool dependency. Like, that's one of my biggest peeves is, like, uh, if you need a specific piece of equipment to control your dog, you're not done training them, period. Period. Like, I don't care. I don't like, like, and if you're, if you're, like, li listen, the average dog owner comes in and says, listen, I don't want to be a dog trainer. I just want to join my horse with my dog. So I'm going to walk him with this prong collar and we're going to be just fine. I'm like, okay, I, 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 I don't have the right to tell you that you're not happy with your dog, right? That's not my place. However, if a professional is happy 
if the client comes to comes to them and says, I don't want to need any equipment on my dog whatsoever. And the, and, and the professional goes, no, you're going to have to walk this dog on a prong collar forever. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Maybe there's a, those dogs probably exist. There are probably some dogs that just for whatever reason will never be trustworthy off a leash. It happens, certainly mm-hmm. happens on like a head collar for sure. Like I've had so many clients, you know, really small, like physically small clients that have like mm-hmm. Great Danes or something, you know, and it really doesn't take much for them to completely yeah. lose control. Yeah. So like, like, I'm not saying that like, 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 like if I've got a 90 year old, 90 year old woman that weighs 80 pounds soaking wet and she's got a, you know, a 110 pound Rottweiler who wants to eat children. Yeah. We're, we're probably going to want to have some, some sort of a reverse of control on that dog. Like I'm not an idiot. Like, but, but is the general rule should be, we should, we should try to avoid equipment dependency as much as possible. Like, uh, yeah, uh, to me, everyone would agree with that. I mean, you'd be surprised how many times I get pushback on that, unfortunately. But uh, so, yeah. But the whole point is, is like, like the the leash leashes are always present in most places. They're required by law, at least here in the states. I know that over there, uh, there's a lot more places where it's safe and legal to let your dogs run off leash. Land, land of the free over here. Yeah, um, <laughs> the free dogs. Yeah. But you don't have guns. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Um, but, but, uh, but no, like, like, like over here, leash laws are present everywhere. So, um, uh, it, it, if the leash is there, why not make it a positive for the dog? If the dog is going to have to deal with the leash, most places he is. Let's make it a positive. No, and, definitely. Everyone has to use a leash at some point, right? Regardless. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. So. And so like, like forced free trainers tend to just avoid leash work entirely because it feels like compulsion. Balanced trainers tend to lean into the compulsion aspect of it and not think of the other stuff. And I'm like going, guys, this is a great tool. Regardless of how you feel about force, this is a great tool to reduce your need for it. And you have a lot of videos about this, Chad, don't you? Because obviously we are only doing a little, we're like we've 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 hit a taster here. But where can people find out more about this? Um, you can, so you can follow me on Instagram. I don't put a lot of videos on Instagram, but follow me on Instagram and Facebook. But uh, I do have a YouTube channel, um, and I think it's just my name. But see, I'm never prepared for these things. Let me let me see. Because <laughs> I feel, I feel like this is going to get people wanting to learn about this. And I think it would be good to have somewhere to point them because uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's actually probably not easy to find resources on. So Yeah, so my YouTube channel is at Chad Mackin. One Super. word. And, so, and where can people find out more about you generally as well? That would be, that'd be good. You mentioned Instagram there. Yeah, Instagram and Facebook, uh, both both under my name. Uh, uh, I, have, uh, I have a website, packedbasics.net, but it's not been updated in a very long time so it's not it's not really helpful um uh so i would say uh instagram and facebook are the are the best places to learn about what i'm doing right now um and youtube uh i'm building more and more youtube content uh i've got a lot of things on the on the back burner that i want to do it's it's always the thing like i have i have a thousand projects and and i can't seem to figure out which one i want to focus on is my real problem but uh yeah, those would be the places that, that most people can get get the most information uh, is, is my socials right now. All right, sweet. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation. That was good. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. No problem, man. It was, it was great. Thanks for having me. 
Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. If you did, don't forget to leave a review. It really helps us climb the podcast rankings or just share it with a friend. And also, don't forget to check out our sponsor, N2N Canine Mills. They sell treadmills for dogs, essentially. They have carpet mills and slap mills. Really fantastic way of improving your dog's fitness. And there is a code for listeners of this podcast, which is NB10. You can find them on Instagram as N2N Canine Mills, or they have their own website, which is N2N Canine Mills. Com. That's the letter N, the number two, the letter N again, and then K9 like the word, and then Mills. Fantastic. See you in the next episode.